Matthews having their 40th episode of the Insecurity Show. This week, we're going to discuss web advertising. Visit our website at in-security.org for show notes, past episodes to leave comments, and more. And send us an email to feedback at in-security.org. Follow us on Twitter at Insecurity Show. And rate and review us on iTunes. My name's Matt. And I'm Max. Hey, buddy. How you doing this week? Oh, man. Am I doing good? How are you? Oh, super fantastic. Are you gearing up for, for holidays? Yes, the house is completely decked out and ready for holidays. The halls have been decked and the holly has been bowed. The halls have been decked and we're doing a little nice charity thing this year. Oh, do tell. My in-laws are moving in with us. To live? (laughs) Yeah. Isn't that awesome? That is pretty awesome. Congratulations, I guess. Yeah, they're going to be homeless because they sold their house and their new house isn't ready yet. Are they custom building houses? They bought a builder lot and that builder lot the dates always extend out. And so this is like the third time the date's been extended out. Huh, that's a little bit crazy. So it's not ready yet. That's also a little bit unfortunate for them, but not for you. Yay. The kids will probably love it. No? Yeah, they'll they'll enjoy it. Uh, I hope to take advantage of the built-in babysitter. Ooh, excellent plan. Hopefully they stick around long enough to be able to do that. They usually have a pretty busy social schedule. Well, it is the giving season, so. Yes. What else is news? What else is exciting? Well, I guess we just finished our Black Friday, Cyber Monday, U.S. Thanksgiving time. That's always exciting. Did you do anything specific to celebrate? I actually did buy a uh, Raspberry Pi, too. There was a very good deal, and I plan on using it in my wiring closet as a network tap. Very cool. Very exciting. I celebrated by not buying things. That's not true. I bought a ton of stuff. I did a couple of purchases. I picked up a few different Arduino um, boards and shields for building toys. Have you built anything yet with your Arduino? I've built a couple of toys, but I just keep taking them apart. Oh, so when I was setting up for Christmas, Mm -hmm. I needed to test LEDs. So last time I bought my uh, old Raspberry Pi, it Mm -hmm. came with this uh, breadboard and it came with a bunch of LEDs and stuff like that. So I took a nine volt battery. I figured out how to do the resistor. There's an LED that tests to make sure it works. And then there's a couple things that I attach to put the LED prong next to and find out what's the accurate direction for this thing to go in. So I was able to repair a couple strands of Christmas lights with stuff I had lying around based on geekery. Great job. Way to geek. Sure. Oh, so I read an article recently about Black Friday while we're on the, the topic. Okay. That for some reason, Black Friday sales were down by like a billion dollars from last year. Seriously? Yeah. I will chuck a link to the article. It wasn't tremendously exciting. That was more or less the content of the article. But so as a direct result of that, you got to assume that this is hitting advertisers where it counts. In their wallets, Max, in their wallets. Let me give you some idea. Advertising money is out of control. From an article I read in Business Insider, for the entirety of last year, the fifth highest advertising budget last year was Verizon, and they spent uh, $2.5 billion in advertising. Wow. Compare that to the number one, which was Procter & Gamble, and they spent $4.6 billion in advertising. Now, they're the world's largest advertiser, and that is ridiculous. But you got to, I mean, keep in mind that Procter & Gamble is kind of an umbrella that has a whole bunch of different brands, brands like, you know, Head & Shoulders and Old Spice. And you can't really get through a sports show without someone yelling at you for Old Spice. That's true. And the sports shows like Super Bowl and whatnot charge a ridiculous amount of money for, you know, a short advertising clip. They really do. So I guess that that makes sense. And these just guys just keep spending more and more money on this advertisement stuff. They really do. And in fact, there's been a shift recently where they're starting to put a lot more of their advertising budget into the web, which ties very nicely into our topic for the show. Cool. What do you think? I don't like ads. Why not? I I think we've touched briefly on the fact before, but I just actually don't like ads. Like I don't mind seeing stuff and experiencing it, but ads have gotten, ads have become an affront on my senses and they've also started to attack computers. That's so true. The pervasiveness of advertising has made it so that for advertising agencies, it's essentially just a race to get ads everywhere without really caring about how effective they are or what kind of effect they have. Yeah, I get the feeling that people are just trying to plaster ads everywhere. They're just kind of seeing what sticks. They've gone through a bunch of different revisions of ads over time. 
Yeah, absolutely. There is. Let's look at the web specifically, and we'll take a look at the brief history of web advertising. Sure, sounds good. So initially, when it was when the internet was young, you didn't really have ads everywhere because it was primarily research papers that were being shared, right? Okay, yeah, back in the academic days. Yeah, in the long, in, long in the ago. early eighties, right? So we went from papers linking to other papers using just hypertext links to individuals creating content and those individuals would link to other pages that had similar interests or that they had a camaraderie with or whatever it may be and again that was primarily using hypertext links and then after a while someone said hey you know we can make these links look a little bit prettier so they started making links with pictures and then they realized hey you know we can animate these pictures using animated gifs and then they realized hey We can sell these links. You went from banner ads to more sophisticated ads as things rolled out. uh, You got more technology behind the web. People started finding new and different ways to try and get people to click on their links. You started having, I don't know, do you remember Spank the Monkey? A long time ago, there was a popular Flash game, which I seem to recall was turned into a fairly popular ad or ad format looked like an inflatable monkey and you had a giant hand and you could smack the monkey. And then if you could hit it far, then you would get more points. And then eventually it would just take you to a link for whatever the page was for. I don't remember. Yeah, I sure do remember that. I thought that was interesting. It was the first time I felt like my uh, mouse cursor had been taken over by a website. Yeah. And it was a little game that a lot of people um, enjoyed and people actually started looking forward to an ad for a little bit and then realized Sorry, it was not what <laughs> people people enjoyed smacking the monkey it was a simple game and as happens with simple games people got competitive and played it for fun huh i i always just kind of said oh that's interesting that's what it's doing um okay on to the content So the ad agency made an interactive game, which ended up being the ad itself. This innovation made it so that the ads could be a lot more robust and people would come to expect it. People could expect a lot more content in the ads. And as a result, the advertisers had a lot more space to work with so that they could start pulling information back from the ads. And that's what you want, though, right? From an advertiser's perspective is you want engagement. You want interactiveness with the product. Yeah, absolutely. You You want to actually seed the mind from a psychological perspective where they associate, you know, the product that comes after the fun bit as being associated with that fun bit, whatever that is. I guess that's definitely part of it. I mean, I don't know enough about advertising, but everyone always says, uh, no press is bad press. So that's why you've sometimes got people who just try and do horrific things. Right. So there's the emotional response side of it, which emblazons it in your mind as well. Yeah. But I think like, like we were talking about many episodes ago, you like the ads that are engaging, that are humorous, right? They don't go over the top. And there are certain ads that just drive you nuts. Since you brought it up, right now, my favorite commercial is Canadian Club 100% Rye. They have product shots. They have a guy who sits there and talks about the product. And that's literally all that happens in the commercial. But I digress. The collection of data is also really critical to advertise. Advertisers want it so that you will pay attention, but they also want to make sure that they get the ads to the right people. So back in the TV days, this was determined by who was passively watching a channel when ads were just kind of thrown in front of somebody, right? Right. So you would have a TV program and it would be aimed towards a specific demographic. Let's say that you were home during the day watching TV, the daytime TV shows, and most likely they would be advertising with something like cleaning products because they would assume that whoever is at home during the day would be taking care of the housework or they would have advertisements for diapers because maybe you're at home with the kids as a stay at home parent. Right. Um, for sports shows, you've got ads for cars, ads for liquor, ads for, I guess, deodorant. Right. Because these people obviously have, you know, disposable income if they're, if they have the time to watch these sports shows, which take a long time. Right. So the advertisers over years and years and years figured out how to target the audiences and then base that. Like 
I don't know if you've ever stayed home sick when you were a kid and you watched some daytime TV and realized. I sure did. Those were the days of my lives. <laughs> well played. Did you realize how not the target audience you were when the commercials would kick in? I sure did. But I learned so much about like Tide versus whatever the other alternative to Tide was. Oh, you're thinking Brand X or the other leading brand. It's also when I learned the majesty of the Craftmatic adjustable bed when I would right. watch all of those Bob Barker episodes. And more recently for the millennials, it's uh, how to get into your shower by opening up the side door to your bathtub. Yeah, it's good stuff. So they needed to collect the data now on the Internet to figure out where to put the web advertising. So what are you going to do? So the advertisers actually spent a lot of money back in the day to have a very vague result of who's actually the target audience. Right. I think with the web, with there being so much content out there, you can actually cater a lot more to the the, pe- the type of content that people are providing to see what works for you. Yeah, absolutely. For TV, they had, you know, set numbers of shows and set types of shows and they had, it was a huge marketing machine. <laughs> this show goes on at this time all the time. Whereas now with the internet, the content is everywhere and it covers everything and is now on demand. But it was like it was a fully rounded system as well on TV, right? So the advertisers would commission to see what type of audience is watching, right, to get the demographic right and which shows were the most popular. So they do these Nielsen ratings where they'd actually have people, you know, with these boxes in their house monitoring what shows their their TVs viewing at that time. Doesn't have to be anybody in the room actually watching it. But then that goes full circle where the content creators are getting compensated based on, you know, what what people are viewing as well. So I, I think that's interesting. And now, you know, that the web with computers and you basically know who's interacting with the website, you have a lot more uh, information for the advertisers to determine the type of people viewing the content, at least what their interests are. Maybe. There's probably a bunch of different information that they can gather out of the website. But it also I did want to color the picture that, you know, it's not just advertisers vulturing on consumers of content, taking the information away to get the most bang for their buck. There's also a compensation back for the people who are hosting the the content there. Right. So now you're getting a little bit ahead. I didn't want to go into too much detail as to compensation. I just want to plant the thought in people's heads or replant the thought in people's heads that it's a symbiotic relationship between the content providers and the advertisers. And we, as the consumer of the content, we're getting the content for free, but we're also being advertised too. So that's the, you know, triangle in a circular motion. Right. Initially, you didn't really have that much in-depth knowledge. It started out by being able to tell that people were interacting with the website. And that was the main thing back then. So what they did was they would have things like um, search data. If you went to any kind of search engine, if you searched for a specific thing, that was the best way to know what to advertise to you. Um, If I search for shoes, I'm going to show you an ad for shoes. If I search for cars, I'm going to show you ads for cars. Search data is mirrored by purchase data. So if ever you go and you purchase a product from an online retailer, they're able to tell exactly what it was that you purchased. And by doing that, they can tell other products that you might like. If they take your information and they merge it together with historical information from other people who have bought product X, they know that frequently people will want to buy product Y with that as well. So search is able to do this as is purchase data. The websites that people are going to had hit counters on them. Right Back in 95, everybody had a hit counter on their page to say how popular a page was which I assume they went to advertisers saying, look at how many hits I have, give me more money. Or advertisers would find them and go, wow, this guy's got so many hits. Let's negotiate a deal for putting our ad content on this person's page. You're right. Advertising on search sites and sales websites were no brainers. People were asking for ads to be served specifically. Using the hit counters and stuff gave the advertisers a way to know who else they should be potentially reaching out to in order to try and get their ads to the most eyeballs possible. That's when they started implementing things like clickstream data from which they could collect information. So the advertisers started finding out that if they're putting ads onto your site, they can have cookies that would save the information to get a record of the various different web pages that you visited that are covered by their ads. 
Oh, this is getting much more modern now. Yeah. Now we're actually transforming it from somebody's got eyeballs on this page or somebody's got an interest in this type of content. And now we're transforming it into this is a behavior of this type of person. I'm just going to ask you to define kind of what a cookie is. Gosh, Max, I thought you'd never ask. So a cookie is basically a text file that ends up getting saved on each individual user's computer. The intention is that it's only readable and writable to by the site that initially created it. Its contents can contain all sorts of interesting data. So, yeah, putting this into the context. I go to CNN.com, CNN.com. Maybe I have a login for CNN.com. The cookie will actually store perhaps my who I am, my identity based on the fact that I've logged in and it'll keep me saved. So if I close my browser and reopen it, I don't have to log in again. The cookie has saved that state. The cookie has the wonderful capability of saving any information that the website creator wants to save in it. And then, of course, they can access it every time you come to visit. Let's say you save settings when you go to visit the website. It'll know the user on this machine has preferred settings. I should probably put those into effect. It really just depends on what the website creator wants. Right. And, and it's important to know that from the context of the browser itself, it's very important that the browser actually controls the security over who can access the cookie because you don't want some other site requesting your CNN.com you know, cookie so that they can view stuff on CNN.com or maybe your Amazon.com cookie and start making purchases based on the fact that you've signed in at one point on Amazon. Right. Right. So, I mean, there's there's security that's embedded at the website layer itself, but there's also the browsers understand the fact that there's login information that they need to treat that securely and therefore the browser itself will enforce the fact that cookies can only be requested by the website that created them and so now if we get back into the advertisement side of it cnn.com might have a cookie for your login id but they might also have an ad hosted there externally on another website so that advertiser would have a cookie there as well right so now the advertiser can track you that you went to CNN.com to view their ad because they understand where that ad's being loaded from and they can insert that into the cookie because, as you said, it's just a text file and you can put whatever you want in there, right? And they can also say, okay, the next time you go to Yahoo.com, right, and that same ad is being served up from that same ad network, it'll know that you've also seen that ad coming from Yahoo.com. So now it's able to create a profile of you based on your browsing habits. Is that what you're referring to as clickstream data? That is precisely clickstream data. Essentially, you're putting together a list of all of the sites that you visit that have ads served by this one specific ad network. And now, by extrapolating the data that you visited all these websites, they then compare that to data from other users that they have that have visited all these websites. They try and correlate what these people have in common, what other websites they may visit, so that they can try and figure out how they should market to you next, where they should try and send you next through their next set of ads that they're going to serve up. The only thing that's really missing here is a way to figure out who it is that I'm serving ads to. But because a cookie can contain any information I want it to, let's say I just put in a little line in there that says, oh, this person is part of user group one. Every time this person shows up, they're part of user group one. Then that means that I pull the ads to serve when this person visits from the collection of user group one ads. All of this is computation done on my server before serving the ads and while collecting info. I'd imagine they'd also be pretty interested if you clicked on those ads too at one point in time and how many ads they needed to present to you before you actually did that. Right. And this is just us speculating on things that might be of use. We don't have tons of money and hours, if not years of research behind this. So clickstream data has basically allowed advertisers a way to cobble together profiles. But what if we were able to just give them a direct profile? As social media becomes more and more prevalent, you've got Facebook, you've got Twitter, you've got all of these things. And Facebook specifically knows as much about you as it possibly can and constantly badgers you to give it more information. And then they have made it so that for any random website you visit almost at this point, you can sign in to that website to leave comments and stuff by entering your Facebook credentials using Facebook login for the web. If you do that, then any time you visit that website, they can tell exactly 
who you are through all your related Facebook data and that you're visiting that website. And that gets added to their collection of information about you. So let's say you sign into a website to comment on whatever topic they're talking about through your Facebook profile. They then know that you are um, interested in that kind of topic, which means that they could potentially serve you ads. And they're also able to follow you because you're signed in through their service, which means that they have access to what amounts to much better data reporting than just cookies could have provided. Right. The reason why I don't actually use Facebook is because of the power that they have in gathering societal information on people. And it's just to me, it goes beyond my comfort level in what they can find out about me. They can probably find out more about me than I know myself, right? Because I don't actually spend the time thinking about the actions that I do and and what that makes me in terms of my motivation to actually purchase something that's advertised to me or you know, whatever else. One of the interesting things is, you know, thinking back to Cyber Monday that we just had, mm-hmm. Amazon, right? I, I did actually purchase something on Amazon. I've looked at Amazon before and I've gone to websites that actually serve up Amazon ads to me. And it's always the stuff that I've looked up and it seems to be like just badgering me. Hey, you're interested in this. Why don't you buy it? You know, sometimes I just click on uh, an article that says, check out the really funny comments in this product. So you click on it and now I'm getting advertised, you know, $400 copper cable for audio, which I'm totally not interested in buying, but I'll still get advertised that based on the fact that I was spending so much time looking at that actual page. Because you visited it. Yeah. Right. So they're not always correct, but uh, you can see how that tracks you and kind of pesters you to actually make that purchase. There's probably some pretty smart algorithms in the background that determine when to give up on something like that. Speaking of the tracking and the pestering, I've read, I read an article recently where they were talking about Facebook on cell phones. Now, I have no proof of any of this other than what I read in the article, but it seems just tinfoil had enough for me to really want to bring it up here because it was amazing. Can you embed that into the show notes? Capital idea, Maxibillion. I shall do just that. And you'll find them at in-security.org slash EP040. So the story goes that somebody had left the Facebook app running on their phone and then they were having just a private conversation in their room without any sort of Facebook recording option turned on. And the conversation that they had ended up resulting in Facebook targeted ads around the conversation. Now, they never actually had any mention of this activity on Facebook or on any of their Facebook related websites, but they got these targeted ads. So they're assuming that just the idle conversation was being recorded and they were using data from that. That's interesting. When you give an app permission on your phone or when you install an app onto your phone, it tells you the permissions that it needs. So sometimes it might ask you for your microphone. In a situation like this, the theory would be that you're allowing the app permission to use your microphone for microphone related activities that you tell the app to do. Well, the app in itself would have the control over that. Interesting sidebar off of this is that the new version of Android called Marshmallow has the ability to actually control those permissions more granularly. Uh, I don't know if the same is true for iOS, Uh, but yeah, so it might also be a coincidence that when somebody starts talking about something, they start thinking about it, they start seeing it more. So that sounds an awful lot like a thing I recently learned about the Bader Meinhof phenomenon. Of course, now I'm hearing about it everywhere. Not not to say that the whole conspiracy thing is valid or invalid. Yeah, like I said, I don't have any any hard proof other than the article that I read, but I thought that absolutely possible because you've given them permission to to use the microphone. And it definitely seems like something that uh, an unscrupulous advertiser would turn to. Right. All of those things that you had mentioned as far as web advertising history, I think those of those are all kind of still being used now, and they're actually combining these things together. I saw a super good article, which I'm going to put into the show notes from a website called Bits of Freedom, and it talks about a smartphone and tracking a smartphone in where it goes and just extracting the metadata out of that. And so they can actually build this super detailed profile on an individual. And these are you know university students, so... They might be cutting edge, but they definitely don't have the experience that, say, an intelligence organization would have around it. And I think that 
advertising organizations are probably just as good as intelligence organizations at building profiles around people. So it's interesting when you have access to what people are viewing on their phone, what they're searching up, what you can actually build out of it. So I'll just put that in the show notes and just mention it as a teaser to entice people to go and see it. I highly recommend it. Uh, But as far as advertising goes, people have really been starting to get suspicious about how much information they're starting to trust in a company like Google, right? They're using Google Maps to look at locations of where to trans, where they're going to go to or things they're interested in seeing. Their search results are being harvested. You know, their emails being scanned through for putting in appointments. So obviously they could scan for other things. And Google Analytics is now on every web page out there, right? So Google is collecting all of this information. So people are starting to get really worried about actually the amount of information that Google has. And Google obviously is also a big advertiser. So they're serving up ad contents whenever you do a search in that top bar based around a profile of everything that it's collected from you in the past. If you use Google Chrome, now it's personalized to an individual. So my household has, you know, five people in it, four of which actually use Google Chrome for stuff. So it's now able to see which individual actually searched for what, you know, so it can serve up my daughter's advertisement stuff for, you know, the new Wii U games or whatever. And it'll serve me up advertisements for, you know, computer security stuff, and it'll serve up my wife advertisements for graphic design photography stuff. And Google ads aren't just from Google searches. Uh, Google sells their ads as an ad network to a variety of other websites. So you can serve up Google ads on your site when like to get some sort of uh, compensation from them. Right, right. And, and, you know, it's not just Google. Right. There's all those advertised networks out there, uh, which we'll get into in a bit. Well, I could rely on you to do that in a bit. Uh, but what I did want to say is that, you know, as you're clicking through from page to page that have these different ad networks on there based on the cookies that's tracking your clickstream data. Right. And maybe these ad networks actually also sell information between each other so that they can get a full, more round and view of of the type of individuals that are in a household coming from certain IP addresses as to what to serve them up and based on cookies as well. They're able to build these profiles around you. And as you click from page to page and you get caught in the Internet wormhole viewing YouTube video after YouTube video or whatnot, right, they're actually able to take that passive information and turn it into active advertisement to serve you up ads, right? And there's no knowing that people are just doing this for advertisement as well. If you look at people that are getting compromised, ad networks are getting compromised. They're serving up malicious software every once in a while, right? Who's to say that the profile information of people isn't also getting taken out of those ad networks? I just want to leave you with that thought. But, uh, but yeah, so... What about these ad networks? You know, the, the concept of Google AdWords, I guess, is the best one to, to take us there. Webster's Dictionary defines ad networks as a network that serves ads. I don't know. It's basically a company that acts as a middleman between advertisers and websites that want to host ads. Then they host and serve the ads up for them. You get a bunch of different companies that want to advertise. You get a bunch of like big companies and they don't necessarily know who to reach out to to put the ads onto the web pages. So what some third-party companies have done is they've become a middleman. So they're then going to reach out to the companies, say, hey, I suspect you want to advertise on the web. And then they're going to reach out to website and content creators and say, hey, I bet you guys want to make some ad revenue. So we will put you guys together. We'll put you both in touch. Mm -hmm. You take the ads from the company, you sell them to the website, or basically you tell the websites, hey, we'll pay you X per click or X per ad serve. Impression, I think it's called. Yeah. So based on that, I guess you take the web, you take the ads, you take them both and there you have the ad network. I assume that as things progress... It just gets easier for the ad networks because over time when they build up a name, they get advertisers reaching out to them saying, hey, we want ads. And they get content creators saying, hey, I want some Internet dollars. Right. The problem for advertisers is that when you're going through this sort of ad network, 
you don't necessarily have any control over where your ads are being shown. So for instance, you know, if your company is a wildlife preserve, then the ad network could simply be showing your ads on a hunting website. They'd be a pretty dumb ad network, but conflicts of interest can happen. Yep. The advertiser has no real control over that. That becomes negligible in comparison to the website owner's problem. The website owner or content creator, as I've been referring to them up until now when I just randomly decided to change it, they don't necessarily have any control over what is happening on their site. You're embedding content onto your web page from someone else which means that you then have to completely trust your ad network, which historically has proved to be risky and doesn't work out. How do you mean it doesn't work out? Well, if you're hot linking something from another website, you don't have control over it. Like there's examples of fun hot linking stories. For instance, the Huffington Post linked to the Oatmeal, which is a web cartoonist. They linked to one of his cartoons uh, by directly linking to the content on his website. And they said, look at this funny cartoon this guy made. So he's paying to host traffic for the Huffington Post, which is a website that has huge amounts of traffic. So basically, anytime anyone goes to visit the site, he's paying for them to look at the pictures. He's not getting any sort of ad revenue by having people actually visit his site. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't actually realize the fact that people who are hosting content are actually paying for the, you know, not just the server that's hosting it, not just the amount of disk space that they're using up on that server, but they're also oftentimes paying for the amount of bandwidth used to serve up that content. Plus being able to, you know, spin up a denial of service, distributed denial of service protections, right? There's a cost to that as well. Yeah, exactly. Now, you know, for us, because we don't have any kind of advertising and because we've got a relatively... Um, tight audience, it doesn't become a huge issue. But if, for instance, one of our shows got linked on a website that has, you know, hundreds of millions of views per day, you can imagine how quickly the bandwidth costs would add up. Well, that hasn't happened yet due to uh, being on iTunes. Haha. <laughs> <laughs> but so what the oatmeal site ended up doing was changing the actual file that they had linked to to explain what the Huffington Post had done. You can check out the link to it, the article in our show notes. Hopefully the HuffPo has learned from their mistakes. And as far as, you know, the, the guy who does the oatmeal, he's also, you know, very good social activist. He's not just like, I want more money, 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 money. He he's actually just highlights the issues and a pros and cons type of perspective as well. Yeah, exactly. It was a great it was a great uh, changeover. There was another funny instance where somebody had created a website and was this is way back in the day. Someone had created a website selling some sort of product and the company they hot linked the photos direct from the company itself. The company realized that they were being hot linked. So they actually just removed the images. Mm. The website owner tried to sue the company saying, oh, you've ruined my web page. Like as soon as you're linking to someone else's site, you lose all control of whatever that content is. That's very true. So as a direct result of that, we see how ad networks can quickly become problematic. And this leads us to malvertising. I think it's interesting just to belabor the point a little bit. So the person serving up the content has lost control of what content is being served up. The person whose content is being served up has no idea where it's being served up. The consumer of the website has no control over what ads they get. All of the control is in the ad network. Right. So this is where malicious people who are creating the content can come in and take advantage of it. Malicious content, like really bad ads. Yes, absolutely. Like really bad ads, like actually bad. There is a thing called malvertising. Uh, malvertising is essentially an ad that will not just try and sell you a product, but will actually try and break your machines and whatnot. Break your machines. Right. Malvertising is a portmanteau of malware and advertising. As ads evolve, they become more and more like commercials instead of the olden days banner ads that we were talking about you had those flash ads like the slap the monkey you've got interactive ads and now you've got uh, videos that start auto playing when you visit websites these videos can't just start auto playing they have to actually have some sort of player so as ads get more and more robust and have a lot more content around them or included in them 
then you have a lot more places for the malicious people to hide bad code. There have been vulnerabilities in browsers before and operating systems like Windows, right, which is the majority of the people browsing the Internet is from Windows machines. There have been problems with fonts rendering where a website could say, I want this ad displayed in this font with all this extra code. And now your computer is running the code. Right. Advertisement networks themselves also use JavaScript a lot of the times to actually randomize kind of what ads get displayed. Right. And maybe remember some preferences in uh, Google AdWords, just because it's the most pervasive one that I can think of. You actually have the ability to click on the ad itself and say, not relevant to me. Don't show me this ad anymore. Right. So I, I assume that that's a JavaScript for rendering. Possibly. Yeah. I don't I don't know. But so you get things like drive by downloads that can happen as a result of these exploits in the code. Right. And, and remember that a browser is HTML itself. It's a bunch of tags and your browser actually puts it back together again, where you have, you know, those different types of scripts that can run. There's a server side script where the actual server chooses you know what to display to you and then there's client side scripts right which javascript is the most pr- predominant one on and it'll actually manipulate what's being displayed and what's running actually on your computer so you're browsing the web not only is your browser displaying the content in a way that the webmaster wants it displayed it's also executing script on your system and script as soon as you're executing stuff on your system from another site you know, you need to worry about the security of that because somebody's going to take advantage of that. And what you're saying is that people are taking advantage of that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not just um, weird, unknown ad networks that are doing this. Like back in August, uh, Yahoo got compromised again, serving up malware or malvertising with a drive-by down. So drive-by download, just to touch on that really quickly, is basically as you visit the website, it executes uh, script in the background and then we'll download and install a program on your computer without any sort of interaction by you necessarily. Right. So Yahoo back in August got compromised by serving up ads to a bunch of different websites that would install ransomware and ransomware is essentially something that runs on your PC and then basically encrypts all of your files and then pops up a screen that says, Hey, pay us money or you can't get your files back. Right. And, and that's like, the most in your face you can get, yeah. right? Is that all of a sudden, boom, pay me money or you don't get access to your pictures that you've stored in your emails and you lose everything. Oh, you didn't have a backup? <laughs> too bad. Oh, you have a, your backup on a network drive? Guess what? I could reach that and I've encrypted that too. You can imagine how bad this is for personal users. They potentially lose, you know, their, their photos and their personal information, my sister's office recently got infected by this as well. So it started spreading over their network. Yeah. So then you've got a company that's potentially losing a ton of money with this. And that's bad, but that's not the worst. The worst is the stuff that's low and slow and stays latent on people's systems. Mm -hmm. Right. And now through advertising something that somebody just happened to click through, you've got an engineer over in GE, maybe, you know, browsing the web on his lunch, he gets his computer compromised. It spreads around the internal network using him as the gateway into the network, right? And now intellectual property is being stolen out. All of the company's secrets might be stolen out this way, right? So you can actually see industrial espionage happening this way because what's even really cool and, and really scary about advertisements is you can cater your ads to certain types of sites. I just want to clarify, since we have been saying that you don't really have that granularity, you have the option with most of the reputable ad networks to actually select where you want your ads to be served. That doesn't necessarily mean that they won't be potentially bolstering other ads or ad serves with different sites. Right. I can say, look, I want to serve my ads to German speaking people who are interested in engineering. Next thing you know, Siemens people are viewing the content or people who are interested in purchasing Siemens equipment, right? And now we get into the stuff that we saw with maybe Stuxnet uh, as an infection vector through advertisement. You've created basically a watering hole, but it's not compromising the website itself, adding content into the advertisement network that's being served up to people to compromise them based on a social profile you've created for victims that you want. Exactly. And with major ad 
networks being compromised. It's not just visiting weird, sketchy sites that can lead to this. It can be visiting completely legitimate sites that happen to have advertising on there. So this leads me to ask you, is there anything that we can do? Well, we've mentioned it before. I'll mention it again. The only way to live on the web and not be victim of this is to block the ads that you're seeing. There's a bunch of different programs out there that'll actually block ads from executing on your system. There's also plugins for browsers, such as NoScript, which will actually prohibit scripts from running on your systems from stuff that you're seeing. Now, we've talked a little bit about, you know, the fact that the content creators are creating this content and not asking for money from you. Some some sites do. Some sites have paywalls where they say, hey, pay us this money to see the content. And maybe that's all that they do. And maybe they also serve up ads. But let's just stick to the content that's only ad supported right now. Where you have the lack of control of what gets advertised to you is where this maliciousness creeps in. Not to say it can't happen without it. It's just now it's abstracted and trying to figure out where and what ad got served up that's serving up malicious content is really complicated web to untangle. You know, my advice to people is block ads. Use a program that blocks ads. There is a moral dilemma here. The content creator might not get compensated based on the fact that uh, the the ads aren't being served up. So maybe approach them about an alternative means of sponsoring them if you feel that way. But ads have proven so malicious, not only in, you know, directly attacking you, but also, you know, the, the privacy loss there is something you also have to consider from these ad networks. If you're not willing to have all of this information taken away from you, take about you, uh, other people, then ad blockers are really the way to go. If you block a site from loading, it can't load that cookie. It can't track you. If you if you actually look at how a web page renders, once you install something like NoScript, you can see that initially there's one script, right, that loads. And then it calls out five other scripts from other web pages. And then it calls out another seven web pages, right? So if you actually install like NoScript or, or Adblocker Plus or Origin or whatever, there's tons out there. Not only are you not getting served up malicious ads, not only are you only getting content instead of being blocked by ads, not only are you lowering the amount of bandwidth that it takes, it's just the user experience is, well... From my perspective, as somebody who was on the web in 94, it's like that again, right? It's it's a nice, enjoyable, you find what you want. You got the research papers there. You know, there's a cert- certain amount of tweaking that you have to do, but these tools are so intuitive that it's very nice to do. Visit the web again for the first time. You start to realize that some websites are just built for ad revenue, Oh my God, last night I was trying to figure out whether or not I should buy the Raspberry Pi to make a Minecraft server for my kids. So I go to this make it maker type website, which got instructions how to do stuff. Every there is every like heading is a different web page. There's like four steps per heading and it's a total of like 15 steps. But it means there's like seven different pages I have to go to. And there's always ads being served up all over the place. And it's just ridiculous. I learned the name for those listicles. Listicles. Oh, another portmanteau, half list, half article. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways. So occasionally you'll just find that, you know, step seven is really just an an entire page of ad. It doesn't even have a step. And then you have to click through to the next one to get to step eight. Right. They're built just to serve ads. So there's got to be a way that you can actually protect yourself. Oh, and you might have heard of this guy, Edward Snowden. He also speaks very highly of actually using something like ad blockers and no script. And even Apple themselves have now enabled a feature where you can block ads through their iOS devices. An interesting move for a company that has iAdvertising, their own advertising network. But then again, the ad blockers they allow don't appear to have permissions to block in-app ads in other apps. And I got to say that Android devices, you can also disable scripts from running on them, from rendering JavaScript. It makes for a terrible experience because it's not a plugin that you can interactively enable on sites. But, you know, if you want to keep your phone safe, maybe that's a step you have to do, too. So going back to the ad revenue model that content creators have, 
this sort of plays to that. So one thing that people talk about occasionally is whitelisting specific sites. So through most of these ad blockers, you do have the option to go into your settings and start playing around with it saying, oh, okay, well, I will, I'll whitelist this one site. I'll allow this one site to serve ads. Isn't that still kind of Russian roulette though? Exactly. The problem is unless that site specifically is serving up their own ads and vet them really carefully, you're still just playing the gambling game. So what we need then is to try and look at alternative ad or revenue models. The first one being the one that I just mentioned, build your own ads. Mm. Ridiculous, ridiculously difficult because you're then having to reach out to the specific companies, having to try and convince them to advertise through you and then having to build an ad for them and then serve it up and then make sure that there's no malware involved. I don't see that as a way to go, but it's a possibility. People do it quite well. For content like podcasts, like for static web pages, I don't see that happening. Right, right. For content like podcasts, which uh, we're doing, there is a really great example of just this. I haven't listened to Leo Laporte in ages, but back in the day, uh, Leo Laporte, who I guess technically is what the godfather of podcasting. Yeah, pretty much. He actually, he, he modified the term slightly. Netcasts, I think that's what they call it, because they were potentially going to get sued by Apple. Okay. So he initially had a really great model that I love, which was essentially for any shows that he put out or made or produced. He has his own podcast network, the Twit Network. And so for any show that he made or or produced, he would go out and find specific advertisers that worked with his existing shows. And it's not wood. It's still this way. Okay. So he goes out and he finds specific advertisers that work with his shows that would complement his shows. So you wouldn't be in the middle of a tech podcast and then start getting advertisements for something that's completely unrelated. They would just be very tailored. And then he would specifically only choose advertisers. Advertisers started approaching him and he would turn them down based on either he didn't necessarily believe in their product or agree with it, or he didn't feel that it was a proper fit for that show. I love it. Yeah, this is great. This is, he would then organically work the ads into each individual show instead of having it, for instance, as a top and tail for the show so that he introduces the product at the start of the show and then never talks about it again. Throughout the show, he would bring it in and his guests, because this was products that they used and believed in, his guests would often chime in and be like, oh man, I've used that. It's amazing. I use it all the time. I can't live without it. That kind of stuff. Fantastic for the advertisers too. Yeah. It basically is just pouring money into the advertisers' pockets because you want that product. If all of these people that you're tuning into specifically listen to are using and endorsing the product and it's something that you need and would work for you then it sounds great beautiful i love it and that's pretty much the best way that i can think of for doing ad ad revenue or gaining ad revenue yeah and it kind of takes the agenda out of it too like sometimes he has hosts on there that advertise their own products and it just feels kludgy and stuff not saying anybody or what disc recovery product they might have but yeah so it, it just you know it really detracts from the show where half of the show is like Here's an endorsement from somebody who listened to my show about a product that I sell on a different site. It's, it's awful, but, uh, but definitely the, the ads that are pertinent to the show embedded in the show, that's a live reading every time that is, you know, brought about in context of something that they're talking about. Amazing. Like as, as, uh, somebody who's listening to it, that interests me in actually going out and purchasing something like that. Cause I can see how it's relevant to my interests. I know I'm being advertised to you, but in that case, I feel like it's okay because it works and it's poignant. So the other alternative revenue models that we have are various sponsorship type sites. Some some of the other podcasts that I listen to have actually switched from advertisement models to asking for the listening audience to actually participate. They do that through Patreon. It's a, it's a website where you can actually, you know, give a monthly donation to a website. Monthly subscriptions fee, I think, would be better, but it's voluntary. There's a lot of different sites that will actually ask for donations, for lack of a better word, uh, donations, subscriptions, whatever it may be. Right. Fundraising type stuff, you know, the old Kickstarter. There was a podcast that was just 
Kickstarter. Kickstarter is a crowdfunding source. So basically you create a Kickstarter campaign and then once the campaign ends, you're expected to put forth the product. So that's not really as ongoing. That's a initial drive with all the various Kickstarter successes and failure stories. It's always a gamble. There are alternatives like Patreon or um, just a donate button, uh, PayPal donate, micro payments. All these kind of things have the ability to actually just collect money for the people. It's like the old PBS fund drives. Um, Occasionally you would do a listener donation campaign. Right. Donate now at the $100 level and you will receive this handsome tote bag. And then, of course, there's the subscription model, which very difficult to get it to work. I think Mm -hmm. uh, the Ricky Gervais podcast went that route. Yep. Loved it. It was a great, great podcast. And then they moved to the subscription model and I suspect they lost a bunch of listeners. They absolutely did, but they still also made a ton of money. Yeah. So fair enough. So Patreon, it's a subscription service, right? You pay on a monthly basis. So the way that they did that is they took your credit card payment information and every month they do a transaction through there. So because of the fact that it's ongoing, it's automatically debited out of your account kind of thing. It was a juicy target and they did get compromised, although it happens. They were very transparent about it and they've corrected the issue, which is what you want to see. You want, you want to see people being transparent, acknowledge it, treat it like an emergency and then go and make it right. They're not the only people who have been compromised. There's advertisement networks that have been compromised. You know, hotels, chains get compromised. It happens to everybody. So don't take it as a well, now I can't donate through Patreon to somebody. You know, there's links to PayPal. I'm sure they've had their security problems in the past as well. People are paying with Bitcoin sometimes. Like you take it and you leave it. So my takeaway from it is oh, ad blocker, ad blocker all the way, all day long. It makes yep. the web so much nicer of a place to visit, but you still want to try and make sure that you support your content creators in some way. And, you know, I love content creators because I consume their products. I just think that the rut that we've fallen into with ad networks. So there's two things. Ad networks do a better job screening content that gets put up. Put it in a test environment. Make sure something doesn't get embedded onto a system. There's lots of security vendor products that are out there that are capable of doing this work. You know, you should be doing that work too. So your part to blame. And then the people who are just surrendering the content of what gets served up on their sites, they also are somewhat to blame because the fact that they're subscribing to these networks that actually are serving up malicious content every once in a while, you know, they also have to hold a a side of the blame. And then consumers of the content, like I said, if if you have to run an ad blocker because we suggest you do because it's the safe thing to do because things have gotten so far out of whack and so unsafe, approach people and say, I want to support you because this is the content that I see every day. Ads aren't working for me. I have to block them for security reasons. So if you want to change the way that you advertise, that's fine. Or if you want to put up a donate button or if there's another way I can support you, let me know. Yeah. As with all advertising, voting with your dollars or in this case, your clicks, which leads to your dollars is probably one of the most direct ways that they'll get the message. Absolutely. So I really do like the idea of try and reach out to them to find alternative ways that you can hook them up. Outside of that, though, there is one other takeaway. I I think I'm going to steal your thunder on this one. And uh, it is that you should have a good week. Oh, my thunder! (laughs) You have a great week, too. All right. For our listeners, we did change the format a little bit. We'd love to hear what you think of this format. You can reach out to us on Twitter by sending a tweet to at Insecurity Show or send an email to feedback at insecurity.org and just let us know what you thought.